You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskins, your host as always. This week, as promised, we have Sandra Brewer from the Property Council in the studio to have a big chat about what we've achieved this year and what we're planning to achieve as property addicts in Western Australia, looking to get the best outcome at the small scale all the way up to the largest apartment buildings in Western Australia. Sandra, you're at the top of the pile in, in my opinion, the most influential advocacy organisation in Western Australia. It's a pretty exciting place to be working right now. How's life for you going? Hello, Trent. That's very nice of you to say that. I'm sure there's uh, lots of other people who are very important advocates talking to government, but it's been a really busy time. We've had some excellent wins for property addicts who are trying to deliver housing in Western Australia. So we're pretty good at the moment. Property hasn't always been front of mind for this government. It's obviously got a couple of other big ticket issues to deal with right now. Health, corrections, those are the things Mm. that come to mind with me. But it certainly is these days property is not just an issue for people with land, the big guys in town. It's an issue that's affecting everyone right now from a young kid coming out of home to an old lady trying to downsize to someone buying their first home, rental market, sales market. Have you ever seen a time since you started in the industry where your job as an advocate in this space has actually been so critical? Mm, You felt like a real fulfillment right now from what you're doing in this industry and what your team's doing? Yeah, it's absolutely nice to have the attention of governments and that's all governments at every level. And I remember an old boss of mine said, we spent so many years trying to get the government's attention on housing supply and to focus on the challenges in delivering the housing that we need for a growing Australia. And it was very hard to do. It wasn't really a front page story. But the pandemic and all of the impacts of that have really changed. It's really unusual for a Prime Minister and Federal Treasurer to be talking about housing policy, but that's happening every other week. And definitely for the Premier of Western Australia, the senior ministers of the Cabinet, all to be focused on how can we deliver more housing is a really good achievement. Do you think it's a positive thing, an efficient thing, an effective thing for the current Minister for Planning housing, homelessness, lands to be someone like John Kerry, but also the treasurer be the person who was doing the planning side of things as well. So it can all tie in. They can, I assume they talk to each other a lot more than previous duos did in government. Yeah, there's certainly um, got a good close relationship and sort of a constructive understanding of what the challenges are and what needs to be done. I think they're facing a very difficult set of circumstances. And even in your opening, you talked about this challenge that Australia is facing right now. And when you look across decades in this country, we've always managed to build enough houses Mm. for the people who come to our country. But in this era, we're really struggling. And the reality is that the housing supply is less than it was in the 1970s. And that's just extraordinary. So when you look at the pressure on our housing and planning and lands minister and uh, the treasurer of the state as well, it is really difficult and it's not the sort of policy making that you can flick a switch and change the outcome very easily. It's an interesting paradigm for someone like John Kerry to be in because he's obviously got a number of portfolios here. But there are also portfolios he's not in control of that have a big impact on the way he does business and how effective he can be. When you think about things like construction in the housing market, 
market. Well, it's massively affected by immigration. Not even at a state level can mm. that be controlled, right? And then you think more holistically about our journey as Australians over the last, let's say, 50 years, as you said, yeah. from the 70s. Well, we've really matured from being more of a secondary education population to having a massive percentage now of tertiary educated people who just aren't laying bricks anymore, aren't spreading plaster around walls anymore. And so that baseline of labour that we may have took for granted for decades of, oh, we'll just say, let's just get more housing in and the labour supply is there. It's not as simple these days, is it? We're now having to import labour just to fulfil the needs of our population that exists mm. here today. That's a very strange situation for someone who's the Minister of Housing to not have control of the amount of people who can build the housing. Yeah. We have become a very sophisticated global player in the worldwide economy. Uh, you know, we have an incredible resources sector that's powered by autonomous technology. We have world leading medical research and services across all sectors of the economy. We've become smarter. You're right. And we've attracted the best and brightest from around the world. But our construction industry, it's a competitive labour market. So for those resources companies that are growing quickly, energy companies, they need a lot of smart people. And so construction does find it difficult to get the people we need. And especially when there's big government infrastructure underway, building hospitals, building major road networks and the Metronet railway program, it means the residential sector doesn't have that pool of workers that it needs access to. It is a bit of a double-edged sword, isn't it? It's the mining and oil and gas industry that really has built the foundation of our economy in Western Australia. But it's also those industries that are taking away the critical resources we need to house the people that live here in the first place. And then you think about the infrastructure side of things. You hosted Minister Safiotti a couple of weeks ago at a breakfast to have a chat about all things treasury and property as well obviously comes up at the Property Council Australia breakfast. (laughs) And she was nearly, it seemed, apologetic for having the projects she had and and sort of saying, oh, you you know, you'll have your labour market back soon. I'm just finishing these projects. Did you get that feeling yourself that she recognises She's taking that labour away from a market at the same time. We have the opportunity to speak to the Treasurer pretty often over the course of the year and that is a discussion that we've been having talking about the capacity in residential construction and she recognised that Metronet does have strong labour demand in the metropolitan area in particular and she spoke about the diminishing need for workers on Metronet sites. So around December at the event she talked about March, April about hundreds if not thousands of workers being able to reduce the work that they have on the civil construction of the railway program. And we need it. Yeah, it's a it's a program that will benefit Perth for decades. You know, in 30 years' time, we'll be saying that was a really smart government decision to expand the infrastructure of our network. So there's some pain now, but we did encourage the Treasurer to speak at our breakfast to share that message of the light at the end of the tunnel mm. to say all of those workers will be available again. So if anyone does have property plans. If there's any developers out there thinking, is it next year that we press go on that development? We hope that that gives them some confidence to press ahead. Hopefully it starts to settle some of just the basic things like the supply of retaining blocks and sewer liners and those sort of things. We don't think of those when we're outside the development game and, and we're looking at the price of a new block of land or housing, but they have had a significant impact on not only the cost, but the availability of trades and therefore the confidence that developers have, the 
risk that gets awarded to that, the margins that the civil contractors add because they're not sure about timing. Time is money, and I think it's starting to trickle into the government that they recognise that it is. You know, these delays are having quite a significant impact on the bottom line of developers who then have to pass through these costs to stay afloat to the first home buyers that are buying mm-hmm. blocks of land. It's, it's clicking, isn't it? Yeah, so what you're describing there is the economic cycles that we go through in this state and the demand for public infrastructure investment and how that's phased with private infrastructure investment, mm. which is residential housing. At the event last week, the Minister announced the creation of a housing supply unit, which is a team of, they called it crack bureaucrats. I think that was how the paper wrote it up, which are going to be based within Treasury, but to look at all of the economic impacts on housing supply. So some people have been a bit cynical about what this unit might do. What do you think it will do? Well, I'm hopeful that they will have that broader view to look at all of the demand in the economy or lack of demand, and to identify those opportunities where we can really add to residential supply, or maybe we don't need to have the foot down so hard. Probably, realistically, we're going to need to have the foot down very hard for Mm. the coming five to 10 years to play catch up. But there's decisions that happen all across government which affect the capacity of residential construction. So I'm actually hopeful that this unit will be not so much looking at tax revenue in, tax expenditure going out again in the state budget, but thinking, well, if we build that major hospital campus or if we build an extension of a rail line, then we need to be prepared that maybe our ability to deliver housing might be diminished and we can avoid those swings and roundabouts in the future. What it alludes to for me is an acceptance that the different departments in the government aren't talking to each other as well as you would hope and as well as the constituent might expect just happens in government. And I think it is a reality that a lot of the decisions that are made in one department up until this point may have had zero communication with another department that is absolutely affected by that cause and the other way where one department could really use some help from another department but somehow there's some silos there no one's talking Mm -hmm. so i guess maybe this is a recognition internally of we could do better in communicating with each other and coordinating whether we need to spend this money now or we could hold off next year or whether John's team needs it and Rita's team doesn't need it this year and next year John's team can have it just to, I guess, coordinate with that but also with industry because mm-hmm. it's not just about the civil government infrastructure, is it? It's also you know, massive companies here who would be employing nearly government-level numbers of contractors where they're all competing with the government at the moment, aren't they? Yeah. I remember when I started as executive director, it was about 2017 and industry was crying out for government investment in public housing to support builders to stay in the industry. Would have been the perfect time for it, wouldn't it? It would have. And part of the problem at that time, I think, is what you just described, is you don't have anybody that has oversight across all the different agencies to sort of recognise, gosh, this really is the right opportunity. If we build a couple of thousand social houses now, we'll keep builders in the industry. It won't cost us as much. I'm not so cynical as others. I'm hopeful that this group can look across, see demand coming from other places. The energy transition is another one. We are going to move to renewable energy across our grid. Now for Western Power and all of our energy infrastructure 
planners, that's an enormous task for them. So someone needs to keep the eye on the everyday businesses as usual of being able to deliver power supply to residential projects or to industrial warehouse facilities. And so somebody with an integrated look across government needs to see those pain points coming. And look, we spoke to Mark Jaisman from JetCharge only a couple of weeks ago about mm-hmm. that transition. He's the guy who's managing the whole government-based grid going all the way from the top of WA mm-hmm. down to the bottom. It's a really cool project to, to think about that transition and what EV car is going to do for the local tradie, the apartment, and the idea that cars will be able to charge back into apartments and keep our apartment lights on at, yeah. at night time. This is really cool stuff that we're looking at into a future that I think is only a couple of years away. It will be an iPhone style transition very quickly, I think, when it does eventually come on. Let's segue, if we can, into the phase two planning reforms that Minister Kerry's announced a couple of weeks ago. What do they mean for WA, if you can explain them in in layman's terms, all the way from the big guy down to the little guy? Because everyone got a little bit out of it, didn't they? Yeah, that's what struck me about Minister Carey's announcement last week. And the first thing that came to mind was this benefits the big and the medium and the small housing projects. The big and the medium were announced at the start of the year at February by the Premier at a Property Council event. So we were pretty familiar with those. And there were some minor clarifications around how they'll operate. So there's a permanent pathway for assessment of major complex projects in this state. So for those projects that are valued over $20 million, they get assessed by the WA Planning Commission and there's a 120-day time limit for that assessment that's and determination. That change? Well, that's extraordinary. Mm. And really, the challenge is to any other state in Australia, could you assess a major project in a matter of months? It's really impressive. And so that has the full support of industry because that makes investment decisions easier. If you're wondering where to invest $30 million in a student housing project or a build to rent project, if Western Australia makes it easier for you, lower planning risk, you're more likely to get that investment. So that will pay dividends for a very long time. And it keeps the politics out of it, doesn't it? I think that's the reason that the SDAU was brought in the first place is because a lot of the places in this part of the cycle right now were really the only places where those larger projects were possibly stacking up were the areas with the most political interference at a local government level. The idea that this is making this an apolitical pathway where you're assessed purely on the planning framework and the design framework and not on whether the local constituents are up in arms about it, I think that takes a lot of that risk out of it for especially what you've referenced, an East Coast developer who's used to Mm -hmm. bringing in 100 apartments, 500 apartments into a Sydney, a Victoria, Queensland. These guys have experience, they have capital it's not just the small guys that are coming over buying uh, investment property in Gosnells or Rockingham right now. The big guys are all looking here too with mm. their money. And this is an opportunity for the, not only for them, but for us. Because one thing we do lack in Western Australia is a real broad base of apartment developers who have experience and can bring some pretty cool options for infill in Western Australia going forward. I think that SDAU pathway is one that, as you said, is going to reap rewards for generations. So then going to the medium level of development. So historically, projects that were over around $10 million could have the option of being assessed by a development assessment panel. This creates the opportunity for projects over $2 million to be assessed by a development assessment panel. And that's maybe three, maybe four townhouses to, yeah. to put that into context. That's Absolutely. A, that's a small to medium-sized build. 
that's fantastic that that's got the opportunity again to take the politics out of it. Yeah, and so obviously most of the developers are consulting with the policies of local governments in their area. They're meeting all of the requirements of state planning policy. There isn't a goal to break the rules here, if you like. The idea is to comply with the planning rules, but then to have that independently assessed and verified, to have a panel of experts to be able to look at that project and give a yes or a no if that's what's warranted. But the certainty of the timeline in dealing with that is a real advantage. Standardisation of decision-making, I think, is a theme across the board with these changes, isn't it? Mm. It's not about, as you said, trying to get a one-up or a freebie. Developers are actually not looking for that at all when they're looking to supply it. All they're looking for is certainty and clarity. As long as they know what the rule book is, they'll play with it. Mm. It's just that for too long now, it's been too many different rule books and, and a real opacity about the detail in how these uh, frameworks are being assessed across different cities and therefore councils. And also a culture of fear amongst planning officers that they're going to put a recommendation forward and then get shot down by a council a couple of weeks later. I think this gives a lot of freedom to the professional qualified, trained planners in the cities too to spread their wings and do their job and make a difference in this state too. And that really comes to the fore in what we call the small part of the planning reforms, which is people who have single residential homes and the fact that their applications will now be assessed by professional planning practitioners who work for the council and under no circumstance can be referred to council for mm. deliberations. Because sometimes that is happening in certain or has been in certain councils, hasn't it, where they would uh, essentially let the city planner make their recommendation, but they ultimately have that decision at the next council meeting. Some cities are less worried about it, were happy to de delegate, defer that decision yes. to the planning officer, but others always wanted to have their fingers in the pie, didn't they? It has been incredibly variable, particularly across the metropolitan area where we have a lot of councils. Very different experience that people had depending on where they lived. Some of it was very difficult, even the time that it takes. So one council, for example, says the planning officers have a delegated authority, but then they need to leave the approval on the desk for two weeks, just in case the councillors want to review it and call it up to council. A council meeting won't happen straight away. It could be another four weeks for the next council meeting. Mm. So for an average homeowner, that could add six weeks in the most straightforward circumstance. Now, this is for people who are renting while they're trying to build. That's the holding costs are astronomical. We know the median rent now is up around $600. It's a lot of money that families have to bear. So we do need that part of the market to be more efficient. And people were having some pretty bad experiences of council making comments about design features or shapes of carports and all sorts of things that really don't make a difference. And in this environment where we have a real need for housing supply, we can't be worrying about those types of details. We need to be building more houses. Standardisation of the JDAPs is something that was announced at the start of the year, along with a couple of those other changes, standardising approvals for you know, carports and those sort of things as well. First question, one, why do you think it's taken so long for it to be implemented? Just to run us through some of the, if you can, the politics behind it. Why wasn't it implemented months ago? And two, what do you think the benefit of standardising these JDAPs is going to be? Mm. Well, all these things take time. The government processes of making an announcement and then working 
working through consultation, preparing legislation, parliamentary drafting. Officers can have a lot of demands on their time. And so it just enters the priority list of government. It sits in the tray. Well, there's a lot of priorities government has to work through. And I think the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act was a high profile one um, that took up a lot of time and um, continues to take up time of the um, parliamentary drafting teams. So it has to wait its turn a bit to Mm. get that resourcing. And there's a lot of policy work that has to be done. And that's probably underappreciated in terms of the complexity of writing legislation and the the amount of cross-checking that has to be done. Mm. Obviously, everyone would like government processes to move faster, but that's just the reality. Standardising the JDAPs, we're going from five down to three. Some people think, oh, that's going to lead to corruption and things like that. For me, what it leads to, again, is more clarity and certainty amongst developers about what they're dealing with, who's making the decisions, what they're looking for, and how we can bring an application to the JDAP that will be approved first time. I would say our members haven't given a great deal of feedback on the quantity of the JDAPs. You know, it's more the quality composition of the people who are on them. We are pleased to see that there's still the opportunity for professional industry practitioners to serve on the DAP and we hope that that's sustained for some time because that really provides the most contemporary thinking, whether it's design or construction methodology. We have had reservations about having full-time DAP members who maybe aren't as contemporary in in the way. Yeah, in touch with how things are changing. So having all of those private professionals who serve on the DAP, and they do that really because they believe in the industry, they believe in wanting to support good projects. It's a bit of a vocation, isn't it? Yeah, it is. They do that as a vocation because... It's um, obviously something else. They could be spending that time in their own businesses, but they do want to give back. They care deeply about the the built environment and making sure we have high quality projects. Mm. And so they want to support that intent. The last few months has been a fairly successful few months in the industry for advocacy and, and reform and whatnot. Obviously, the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act was one, as you referenced, where everyone was up in arms and that got swatted down pretty quickly. It then moved to the draft POS situation, which seems years ago, doesn't it, that we Public were Public open space uh, contribution exactly policy. Exactly right. Yep. That came and went very quickly with John Kerry marching that out the door in his first week of being the minister. There was also, obviously, the a deferral, I guess we'll call it, but for me it seems like the repealing of a policy that hadn't even come in yet, the medium density code. And then only a couple of weeks ago, we've had what is actually really a crucial change that is maybe underappreciated, the off-the-plan concessions being extended to in construction. Mm. Uh, lots going on, and, and I know it's not just the PCA, but all I can say is a big congratulations and thank you to the very hard work that yourself and Emily Young have been doing at the PCA for making some of this serious change because without it, it's actually a very scary world that where Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act exists, where the medium density code exists, where the public open space policy moves from draft into being something that we're seriously considering. This is a world where nothing gets built ever, to be frank, and that's not hyperbole. This is this is a really stuffed up world. So thank you for all the changes you guys have been pushing for and been pretty successful at the last few months. In all of these policy changes, U-turns in the case of Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act and just a, a stop and think approach, I think, on the medium density code in particular, 
It's a recognition that, yes, this environment that we're in is really difficult for feasibilities to stack up. So the cost of construction are exceeding really the cost that you can get in the market and for a completed home. And so that is really difficult times and good governments respond to the times that they're in. So policy that does take years to develop might find that when it's ready to be revealed to the world that it's not exactly the best timing for a policy like that. So it's good government decision-making to listen, to rethink and if necessary, take a slightly different direction. I think throughout all of our advocacy, we've never been sensationalist or alarmist or complaining. We always take really smart analysis to the government, really good data sources that we prepare with our committee members. We're so fortunate to have really smart people who work across the breadth of the built environment, architecture, development, financiers, construction companies, Mm. town planners, local governments who sit around our committees and we all combine together that expertise to produce really smart, informed policy advice for government. So that's what we're proud of. We feel that that's led into some of the decisions that we've seen and it'll take some time to have a really good impact. The planning reforms that were announced just last week aren't expected to be passed through Parliament until 2024, might take until about the first quarter of the calendar year to get through Parliament. And we've got all fingers crossed that that's a smooth process. And then hopefully we'll start to see some runs on the board. But this could be the start of WA's big home build. Mm. We're really releasing some shackles, removing some barriers And maybe this time next year, Trent, we'll be talking about the fantastic impact of those planning reforms. Well, I hope so. And for me, it's not just an aspirational goal. It's 100% a necessity. It's a basic need that we need to be providing to the tens of thousands of people that are rocking up in WA at the moment. We had 80,000 people come in the year to March this year. That's 40,000 homes Mm. they need. We built 12 And the capacity was full. Something's got to give in that space, not only in terms of the amount of labor available, as we referenced earlier, but ironing out all those kinks, I don't think is an optional thing. And and whilst I might sound slightly or very alarmist in my views of what I think of the policies that were coming in that have been knocked on their head, I think they were extremely poor policies, not only for the time we're in now, but for any time. And it just makes it more critical now when a government may be able to stand back and say, well, it didn't work for today. But in fact, some of these policies were not going to work for any time if if you're actually trying to provide the best uh, environment and framework for what you referenced earlier was not just a need for housing now, but a need that we were talking about decades ago that it's just rearing its ugly head isn't it? Mm. So advocacy isn't something, as you said to me before, isn't something that you've finished your job, it's done. Obviously, the world's moving all the time. What's next on the agenda? You've ticked a whole bunch of things off Mm. the checklist for, I guess, the wish list for 2023 that you guys would have maybe put together on a whiteboard somewhere. I don't know how it works, but (laughs) what's left on the list? What are you planning for the rest of this year and next year to start heading towards the ministers again to say, come on, guys, these ones are still Mm. on the list? Well, I would start with one that you just mentioned, which is the public open space contribution policy. That has been really damaging to feasibilities in an environment where feasibilities are 
almost nearly impossible. Mm. So any developer now has to take into account the fact the government has flagged by releasing the DPLH consultation that they are considering an a contribution scheme to provide for more parks, gardens and public open space in Perth. And I would just pause at that point and say that's not our priority mm. right now. That is just not the crisis that we're facing. So our encouragement would be that that policy needs to be withdrawn completely and for the government to make a clear signal that that policy is not being considered. And I think it's incumbent on the department and the planning commission to identify how much public open space we have across the metropolitan area, whether we really do need any more, where that might be, and to develop a strategic plan for Mm. that. And then that helps us as a community to plan for more open space if that's what's required. But really, we need everyone leaning into housing supply right now. Mm, That's right. It is about priorities. But as you said, it's also about clarity about what we're after. Most people in the property industry, outside the property industry, who aren't looking at this specifically, wouldn't recognise that there's actually a difference between public open space and, for example, state-level reserve space, right? We would all see this as just area we can throw a frisbee and run the dog around. To us, it's all the same. It's just grassed areas with some playgrounds and whatnot. But it, it is interesting how the state government differentiates between these two and whether we've got enough public open space or not. And I think if you ask most people in Perth, well, I would like to think they would say, yeah, we're a state that's renowned for having a great amount of open space. Most parks are empty most of the time. It's not like they're bustling on a Wednesday afternoon. That's where I, I find a real struggle to not have the clarity. The homework hasn't been done at a state level, it seems. They leave it to the local government who are proactive on it to really understand both at a public open space level, in inverted commas, and at a state reserve level, mm-hmm. um, how much green space do we have? We're not talking about trees here. We're actually just talking about parkland for us to go out and walk the dog. Once we get that information, then we can maybe have a more of an educated understanding as to whether we have enough or not. And if we don't, we, if we seriously don't, what we're all going to do about that. But it doesn't seem, as you said, to be the priority that we're lacking in park space right now. What we're really lacking on is affordable housing. And that, I guess, leads to the the next point on Mm -hmm. what can we be advocating for in this state? What are the solutions that you guys think are the next step towards providing more of that affordable housing or even just more housing right now? What do you think your hit list looks like? Perth will benefit from greater housing diversity and choice across a couple of different key strategic sectors. One is student housing, because that is an extremely successful part of our economy, contributes to our gross state product. I have students studying here, and hopefully by attracting the best and brightest to study here, they might consider making a life in WA. So the provision of student housing really provides relief to the rental market. And so that's something where I'd like to see good policy making and subsequent investment in the next few years. Build to Rent, another sector of the housing market that's quite new, where people are treated as a customer for a long-term lease by a single investor. That provides a really good opportunity to add to our rental diversity. But even seniors housing, making sure that retirement villages operate under legislation that really encourages further investment and that all local governments are setting aside places for downsizer properties or for seniors to move from a 1,000 square metre block to a a retirement village unit or at least 
just a smaller block where they can have less garden and downsize in the suburb that they grew up in, mm. they would all be pretty good priorities for next year. Sounds like a real signpost towards what has been that thing that's stalled in Western Australia for the last few years, and that's trying to figure out how to get apartments to work. Mm. Now, you've, you've not said the word apartments, but when you think about student housing, I think about high-rise apartment in the city yes. next to ECU. I think about some density, some scale out near Murdoch and these sort of places. When I think about aged care, I think about four or five-storey buildings that are coming out these days, like in Marangaroo, for example. Uh, it's not the old broad-based unit-style lifestyle village you're seeing these days. A lot of it's more integrated, over mm. 55s, apartment buildings. Build-to-rent, obviously, apartment buildings. That's what you think about when you think about build-to-rent. A lot of conversations that need to keep being had, I think, to figure out how we're going to make apartments stack up across all of these subsectors, right? Not yeah. just the investment space or the owner-occupied space, but all those other housing types you were talking about. Apartments is the future, but it seems to be not only the challenge of getting developers to make feasibility stack up in the first place, but not even having the building companies available anymore to compete mm. with each other and provide product. It's nearly that the handful of builders available in Western Australia will pretty much determine which builds get done next year yeah. because there's just not enough capacity. And then you think about just attracting enough people, not only from Western Australia, but internationally to start being that ballast of purchasing to deal with the way that developers need to finance apartment buildings, which leads to the final point mm -hmm. being financing. And yes. one thing I think we are not even scratching the surface on, and I've actually had a couple of banks call me and asking me for my opinion on how they can help solve this problem with a minister is how do the banks start becoming part of the solution and not the problem? Because we can all talk about planning and housing, construction, all we like. Mm -mm. But the interesting thing that none of us seem to be talking about, I don't think, maybe you, you guys are talking behind closed doors, is the biggest investor in property is the bank, yes. right? And the guys who set the actual rule books before you even get to planning is the bank. And the second they start turning the screws like they did about 20 years ago on things like land development funding and then things like apartment development funding with regards to their debt coverage requirements, it starts to make it not only that much more expensive to deliver housing, but that much harder to get things over line. And then just the risk profile becomes so much so much more riskier, if I can say yeah. that, for what is already a very complex way to build and provide supply of housing, which is apartment mm. development. Surely a serious round table needs to be had with the big four bank to say, guys, how are you going to be part of the solution just like everyone else? Mm. Well, there's some big ideas there, Trent. I think those types of conversations are happening more at a Commonwealth government level mm. where the banks are looking at the banking system and the limitations that they are under, they would say, I'm sure, that they're covered by APRA and the regulations yeah. that... Uh, APRA sets the rules, sorry. That's exactly, it, it is. And in some cases, we've looked at the ability of someone to buy a property and the bor borrowing limits that they're assessed against. And we know that APRA requires the bank to assess several percentage points above the standard variable rate. I believe it's around 9% at the moment. Mm. Now, no one really expects that interest rates will go to 9%, I think, in the short term at least, unless you're a forecaster uh, and, no, uh, look, you're, you're and correct. tell us what's and, going to happen. And some banks are actually have actually brought in their own policies despite APRA's provisions. Uh, for example, if you, uh, you know, look at CBA and Westpac, I believe, they've got a 1% buffer. If you're meeting your current repayments with another 
the bank, they'll reduce the buffer to a more realistic number because mm. you've obviously got good credit history. You reference, obviously, the end buyer here. Yes. But it's even just the delivery that, you know, you think about Bankwest, for example. My understanding is they've got a group of 10 developers around this country that they'll loan to at the big scale in the land development space. No one else gets in the club, mm. right? That's anti-competitive. It also reduces the ability for the medium, smaller guys to actually have an opportunity to add supply if they wanted to. They have to go to private lending, which is much more expensive, to be able to deliver that product, which then gets passed on to the end user. These are big conversations that I don't think are really being had at a government or advocacy level where huge opportunities exist to be able to broaden the base of supply for those people who would like to provide it. It's probably a little outside of our day-to-day advocacy area, Maybe Trent. it shouldn't be. We do have our colleagues um, who work in our national office on capital markets. They're actually holding a really interesting capital markets conference in Melbourne oh, there you go. Uh, in the coming weeks. But uh, that is where the banks and financial providers do get around the table and talk to industry. I think federal government might consider the lending standards in future when they begin the establishment of Housing Australia mm. and to look closely at what some of the limitations are in the market, which you talked about, access to finance, the amount of pre-sales that are required to be able to proceed, the amount of capital contributed by the developer versus what's lent by the institution. And so I wouldn't be surprised that there's some reconsideration of policies there, but uh, I'll have to keep you updated well, on that one. Wouldn't that help? Sandra, thanks so much for coming coming in today and having a chat, a bit of an overview really of how far we've come as as an industry because it's important to take stock sometimes and recognise just what's been achieved this year. Mm. And whilst there's a lot still that is required, foreign buyer surcharge, indexing the first home buyer's rate of stamp duty are the first things that come up the top of my head. There's also been a lot that's been achieved. And without recognising the people like yourself, your team, the ministers, for example, for what is actually being achieved, then it's a very unhappy environment really, isn't it? So I think we celebrate it, yes. get towards Christmas, and hopefully some of those those changes that have been, been announced start to get legislated. Yeah, it's a really good acknowledgement. I know when I talk to national colleagues across all other states, Western Australia is held up as the example of one that is getting the planning reform process right. I know that when there's meetings of federal housing ministers, that's the discussion. So we are absolutely on the right path. And credit to you too, Trent, because you are keeping these conversations alive. You're making sure that all policy ideas are examined and scrutinized scrutinised, promoted or criticised, depending on uh, what we think of them. So Mm. well done to you too, mate. Thank you very much. All right. Look forward to speaking to you probably in the new year about how things are cracking on. Sounds great. Thanks, Sandra. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!